Good morning, everybody. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney and the CEO of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. Welcome to another United States Study Center webinar, uh, this time on lessons learned from the US response to COVID-19. And today, it's a, it's a great pleasure uh, to be joined by Professor Raina McIntyre, who is NH MRC Principal Research Fellow and Professor of Global Biosecurity um, uh, at the University of New South Wales, where she heads up the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute. Uh, and if you've been <laughs> not under a rock, if you've been attuned to Australian media at all in the last month or so, uh, with extremely high probability, you've seen Raina um, helping lead the national conversation um, about the nation's response uh, to COVID-19. Uh, it's so in Raina's research lane that we were just so excited when she agreed to give us some of her precious time uh, for this webinar this morning. Raina's background is in epidemiology, vaccinology, bioterrorism prevention, uh, a good dose of mathematical modeling, holding all of those things together. Uh, genetic epidemiology, public health and clinical trials with respect to infectious diseases. Um, Raina is also a dual specialist physician. And, and as, you, as you heard with that recitation of her research interests, um, interests that run all the way from, from, from epidemiology back through the, the mathematical modeling uh, that holds all those uh, diverse uh, parts of her research portfolio together. Um, but very practically focused. Uh, this is a, uh, a body of research that, that deals with how viruses spread in, in populations of, you know, and indeed the word itself, epidemiology refers to uh, the study of uh, uh, epidemics and, and alas, in this case, uh, a pandemic. Um, what we thought we'd do today is draw on Rainer's uh, expertise to help us look at the way both the progression of the pandemic in the United States compared with Australia, but also the nature of government responses in, in the two countries, and some of the challenges that poses, not just for the policymakers, um, but also for public health professionals, but of course, um, the publics in, in, in both countries. Um, I do wanna, at the start, as we've been doing with these webinars, you know, just, I think it's, a, it's a, an appropriate moment to just recognize that while we're sitting here, working remotely and, and using technology to have this conversation. There are healthcare workers all over the world right now, from Northwestern Tasmania through to New York City and everywhere in between, uh, dealing with this tragedy uh, that continues to unfold. And uh, I think it's appropriate that we, we just pause for a moment and, and, and you know, thank them uh, for what they're doing to, to keep the rest of us safe. And, and trying to save lives as best they can under extraordinarily trying circumstances. And the other opening note that I'll, that I'll make is, is when it comes time for live questions, if we could keep those very short, the way this works with this technology is that we've got two of our events team are literally parsing uh, the questions as they come up um, in, in, a, in a chat window and, and they in turn have to get those to us and, and, and the less text, the better. And so if, if this were a traditional in-person event, I'd say uh, questions, not comments, not speeches, please keep them short. And, and that's especially um, valuable in this context where um, trying to sort through sometimes the volume, the sheer volume of those uh, questions becomes um, a little bit of a burden and can really slow down the event, particularly in the last 15, 20 minutes or so when we're really trying to make sure the more interesting and the more relevant questions from the audience do get, do get asked. So thank you in advance for that. Um, that's enough from, good morning, Raina. Good morning, Simon. Hey, thank you. Thank you again for doing this. I can't imagine the demands on your time at the moment. And so I thought, I thought we might um, start off by, if you, you know, Mara, I think we might just take a quick spin through this slide deck that we've got and, and, and perhaps it's a great, I think, point of departure uh, to, to, to kick off the conversation. Um, if we could move, well, there's a little 
just a, a teaser for some of the work we're putting up on the US Study Center website at the moment. Um, the research teams are producing a ton of work at the moment that I'm enormously proud of. And I, I think there's, there's a tremendous amount there for Australian audiences looking, for instance, at the way the economic response to the crisis is unfolding, Australia vis-a-vis -vis the US, uh, the way that US military is being deployed, um, and, and indeed an early piece that we commissioned from Leslie Russell looking at the way the, in the two countries how our elderly populations are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. But I, I want to dive in on a, um, a, a set of analysis that um, uh, Zoe Mears, one of our uh, data analysts and visualization specialists out at the center, has compiled from public sources, uh, just demonstrating kind of how this pandemic is unfolding literally by the numbers um, in, in the two countries. Um, like everybody else on the planet, we've gotten used to seeing uh, quantities plotted on a log scale here, but the, but the two lines here show the, just the prevalence uh, the trajectory of prevalence over time on a, on a log scale. Um, this is normalized by population. So this is cases per million pop of, of population. And I guess, Raina, I guess the, the, the first thing that jumps out is that, that so-called flattening of the curve uh, in Australia. Um, that's real to your way of looking at your professional eye? Yes, I think so. Um... And I think it's largely the impact of the travel bans that were implemented between the 5th and the 10th of March. So that was the second tranche of travel bans against Iran, South Korea, and then Italy. Uh, generally, you see the impact of interventions two to four weeks after they're implemented. So um, what we're seeing there from about the 23rd of March um, is, is probably the impact of those travel bans. And we know that over 60% of cases we were seeing in that period were imported through travel. And I guess that leads sort of to a, you know, to, to the obvious question. You see the, the case count there, 255 per million population versus, you know, it's, what is that? That's about 1,700 in the US. Um, you know, that's a dramatic difference. And, and I guess the thing about the US, Rainer, is that we are not seeing that curve starting to, I mean, it is less steep than it was, say, a month ago, but it is not as shallow a curve as I think anybody would like to see. I'm just, you know, do you have a, are you willing to make sort of any sort of a rough forecast as to when that curve in the United States might to look, you know, close to as horizontal a curve or approximating a horizontal curve as we see in Australia? Well. You know, I think in terms of the lockdowns and so on that have been implemented, where they have been implemented, you can probably expect see um, a flattening of the curve as, as a result of that within the two to four week, four week period after they're fully implemented. But in terms of patchy bits and pieces kind of lockdowns, you know, a bit of this one day, a bit of that the next day, that is less likely to show an impact. Um, there's also obviously um, quite big differences between states in terms of the incidence of disease um, and some real hotspots like uh, New Orleans and New York and Jersey. Um, it may take longer for those hotspots to show a flattening of the curve. Sure. Um, that's perhaps a good point. Can we flip to the next slide, Mara? Thanks. Yeah, that, that's um, showing not just the, 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 the case count, but, uh, but uh, unfortunately fatalities normalized by population. And, and, and there, the, I mean, I think this is one of the incredibly stark differences between the two countries. Not only is there a big, you know, multiply, you know, the proportionally very many more cases in the United States, but when you flip down to um, fatalities, um, even on a normalized by population basis, the United States is, what is, that's about a factor of 35X, uh, 30 to 35X um, in, in the United States. And, and then, Raina, the thing, again, my amateur eye is drawn to is, is just, you know, one curve looks pretty flat to me or way flatter uh, than, 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 the, than the other one. And I guess that was your earlier point that it takes a while 
for even strong interventions to have their impact felt when it comes to a, you know, a, a, an outcome like fatalities. So there's a few different factors to tease out in um, interpreting those curves. Um, one is that the counting of deaths tends to lag behind the counting of cases because people don't die straight away. They are in hospital for several weeks usually. Um, and you generally find in any country that the case fatality rate increases over time for that reason. The second thing is that the um, case fatality rate, the real case fatality rate is influenced by your ability to provide intensive care and ventilation for patients. Patients generally die of respiratory failure uh, when they can't breathe, and if you can't ventilate every patient who needs it, your case fatality starts to go higher and higher. And we saw that in Italy and in Spain when they ran out of the capacity to ventilate patients. I believe that is an issue in um, some of the hotspots in the US, but the other consideration is um, the fact that we've got universal health care in Australia, so nobody is denied care. But in the US, we are hearing reports that some people are unable to get through the door of a hospital if they don't have insurance. So that could also be contributing to increased case fatality. So um, I think it's um, a combination of those factors. And Rainer, I guess the other thing, since you, you know, that last comment of yours leads me to ask, universal healthcare, and just access to primary care in the ordinary course of events probably leaves the population at baseline levels in slightly better state health-wise, such that there are a few people with undiagnosed or even diagnosed, but chronic conditions that are being managed. And, and hence, when something like COVID-19 comes along, you're in you've got better surveillance or you've got better care going out to those vulnerable members. You've got fewer of them for a start, but fewer people with diabetes, fewer people with those sorts of conditions that just anecdotally, what I'm hearing, Raina, is that, you know, they're especially susceptible uh, to a bad outcome um, from COVID-19. Yes, that's, that's right. Um, we know that people with chronic diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, as you said, are at increased risk of bad outcomes, of either needing hospitalisation, intensive care, or of dying. Um, but I think I've just seen some data as well from the US suggesting that the rates of death from other um, diseases is also going up. Um, there's quite a spike in rates of death from other causes, and that's because, um, particularly in the hotspots, the hospitals, all the hospitals have become essentially COVID hospitals. So all the beds are occupied by COVID patients, and there's no capacity to treat other urgent um, medical conditions. And that's one of the problems that have been seen in all the countries that have had um, severe epidemics. That's a, that's a telling and incredibly sad point. And, you know, helping to put some, make real, I guess, this statement that a lot of us are hearing, what it means for your healthcare system to quote, get overwhelmed. Um, I guess that's one of the things that happens. Um, it's not just the COVID cases, but it's all the other people that would ordinarily be seeking care that can't get it and, you know, perhaps headed to a, a far more dire outcome than they would otherwise. Um, that's, a, that's a sad but helpful observation, Raina. Thanks. Um, not to mention also, if I can add, um, the impact on healthcare workers in both the US and the UK we're seeing, and in Italy and Spain, in China as well, we saw healthcare workers dying. Uh, getting infected and dying. Um, so that also affects the ability to treat people with any other medical condition because if, uh, you know, a substantial proportion of your health workforce is off sick, there's a limit to how much they can manage other types of medical conditions. In the Sheffield um, Trust in the NHS in the UK, they tested all the health workers and found that one in five were infected with COVID-19. That's just you know, phenomenally high. Um, and we've also seen specialists, you know, more senior doctors dying you know, because they're older um, in the US and the UK and they're generally from other specialties because if you're working in urology or cardiology or some other field, you're less likely to be able to access proper personal protective equipment 
and you're more at risk in a way. Wow. Um, um, that's, that's, that's bleak, but, but, but thank you for sort of shining a light on, on, on that side of it, Raina. Thanks. Um, Mara, could we keep, could we keep moving? I just want to, now this is something, this is the, the, the rate of testing and, and, and this has been a fascinating aspect of this pandemic um, from my perspective. And I, I'll ask you a question about this in a moment, Raina, but, but just the tail of the tape here is that, you know, throughout the course of this pandemic, Australian test rates have, have always uh, been comfortably um, higher than uh, the, the test rate uh, in the United States. Uh, and, and again, very early on anecdotally, and, and it continues now, um, stories, um, firsthand accounts coming out of the United States about even healthcare workers um, being unable to get a test. Um, and indeed, you know, another part, as the history of this is, is already being start to be written, um, the fact that, you know, the otherwise quite competent and you know, has a great global reputation, the, the Centers for Disease Control, um, you know, messed up um, the initial test that they were circulating um, out into the field in the United States. Rain, I'm just wondering from, you know, the, the scholarly communities that, that you operate in, you know, what, what's the, the sense of, you know, the why the US testing rate has, has lagged many other countries, not just Australia? So it's, it's really um, quite shocking to see how it has unfolded in the US and testing has been central to the loss of epidemic control in the US um, or the lack of testing. And that started out being first gatekeeping of the testing where only the CDC was allowed to do testing, states were not allowed to uh, do their own testing and then uh, there was a faulty test kit circulated which wasn't functioning properly. Then when states were um, allowed to develop their own tests and there were so many research laboratories you know, who had the ability to um, develop new, new tests, um, there were lengthy delays through the FDA in um, getting those approved. And so there were just obstacles at every stage. And meanwhile, you know, over a period of a couple of months, the epidemic was continuing to spread. And if you can't detect cases because you can't test, you don't, you've got no idea how big the epidemic is. Given that 80% of people have mild disease, you won't notice it until it's so big that the severe cases are starting to impact the health system, which is exactly what happened in Washington state. Um, at least three generations of cases have been circulating and spreading from that first initial case in the US um, and nobody knew it was happening. Uh, um, Ryan, to what extent has that high rate, flip it around, to what extent has the sort of the more favorable rate of testing in Australia being key to you know the relatively good outcome that we've seen thus far in Australia. I know you mentioned the travel bans earlier as probably first cab off the rank in terms of factors that have led to a good outcome in Australia. But what how do you rate the importance of that testing rate? Yeah, look, there's no doubt Australia has managed to scale up testing capacity quite substantially since the beginning. Um, and that uh, and also set up, now in New South Wales, for example, they've set up um, drive-through testing like they did in South Korea um, in the hotspots. So suburbs where there's a lot of transmission, uh, you can drive through and get a test. So that will definitely help in identifying more cases. Um, however, you know, both one thing that the Australian and the US testing protocols have in common is that they are restrictive protocols. They only limit testing to people who have symptoms. But there's now a pretty convincing body of evidence that you can have COVID-19 without any symptoms and transmit it to other people without any symptoms. Um, so if you're not testing high-risk people who have no symptoms, for example, family contacts, if somebody gets sick, um, and you only test people in their family, in the household, 
who um, have symptoms, then you're going to miss potentially cases that are um, infectious but not with, but don't have symptoms. And that's a shortcoming both in Australia and the US. And that's necessary. That's particularly necessary for lifting the foot off the brake in terms of social distancing restrictions. If you lift the foot off the brake, you absolutely have to expand testing capacity vastly to be able to detect every new case. Otherwise, you're just going to see a straight up, you know, jump in cases again. Um, Raina, what's the, what's the impediment to really dialing up um, testing capacity? I know early on, and again, I'm not a specialist, but you, you'd read in the media reports on shortage of some of the you know reagents needed um, uh, to do test through to things like there just aren't enough nasal swabs in the United States. Um, 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 what, what are the impediments to really dialing up um, the, the rate of testing to get us up to that sort of literally on demand mass testing people several, you know, coming back and retesting people, you know, weeks, months later, what, what, what are the impediments there? So um, in the US, I think there've been some logistic impediments, you know, like the FDA blockages, um, things getting held up at the FDA. And, you know, I read how one a lab in Washington state had emailed their application to the FDA and they got a response saying, no, you need to actually post us a CD disc with the data on it in a, in a you know, so ridiculous kind of obstacles being thrown at people. Um, and it took a long, by the time they realized you know, what a cost that had come at in terms of allowing the epidemic to spread. Um, it was too late, you know, there were already massive epidemics in several states. Um, now, the US of any country has the infrastructure to scale up testing massively. It's, it's the most technologically advanced country in the world. There are lots of really high quality research laboratories and commercial infrastructure in terms of companies that can do the testing at scale and you know uh, at, at some point in the last few weeks um, I think sometime in March the US government uh, started working with Roche and another another company to scale up the testing but there's yet more companies that could be contributing to the effort so the technical ability is there in the US um, uh, one of the other problems of course is the supply chains and that we've become so globalized that Everybody depends on supplies from other countries. Um, in the case of swabs, a lot of it comes from the northern part of Italy, you know, which was so hard in right. itself that um, that impacted the ability to get swabs from other to other countries. And um, I think we all need to reflect on our domestic manufacturing capacity. And you know, many commentators have said we need to go back to a wartime kind of economy where people who are unemployed or unable to work because of the restriction, social distancing restrictions um, are re redirected towards work in essential industries around healthcare and medicine. So, you know, making swabs, making ventilators, making respirators and masks, this is what we need. And, and the US more than any country has the capacity to do that. Um, I want to come back to the supply chain issue a little bit later, I, I, you know, but it, it crops up in so many places here, um, <clears throat> not just sort of the outbreak issue, but, but also the ability of countries to manage um, a public health crisis like this one. We'll definitely come back to that in a moment. Just while we're still on testing, Rain, I just want to pick up on something you said earlier, and that is, you know, you can't manage these crises without without good data. And I'm just fascinated by the hard choices that public official, public health officials must face. You've got a finite amount of testing resource available to you. In fact, you know, quite scarce in the early days of this pandemic. Where you, how does one choose where to deploy that? By, by looking first of all at, in Australia, I know there was this very strong bias towards testing recent overseas arrivals and people with symptoms. I mean, you're doing, if you do that, you're not putting yourself in a strong position, I'd imagine, to track community transmission. It's just this dire trade-off that public health officials must face. Do we test 
where we expect to find positive cases while we're, for the time being, we're turning our attention away from the extent of community transmission by doing that. What, how do public health officials make those decisions about when to shift the testing focus and, and you know, just live with the anxiety, I suppose, that comes with knowing we're not testing out there in the, in the general population. So we are flying blind to some extent, or am I overstating that, Rain? I'd, I'd so appreciate a professional take on that sort of dilemma. That's a good summary, really, of the situation. And I think what the public health authorities are faced with is rationalising the use of limited testing, test kits when, when they haven't got an infinite supply. Um, and they then direct those to the people at highest risk, of, you know, the most likely to come up positive, which, you know, tra return travellers is a very reasonable um, use of the um, test kits because that has been the biggest source of cases in Australia. Um, but as you say, you know, uh, you can then have undetected transmission in the community that's growing silently um, because the majority of it is still mild and you're not going to realise how much there is out there in the community until it's so big that that 20% of severe cases starts impacting the health system. Right. And again, the time lags here are not on your side either. That's, you know, 10 to 14 days, say, before people are, are feeling so ill that they start to present. And you, your detection is now presenting at hospitals, not what you're picking up two weeks earlier in, in your testing and exactly. it's got yeah. to be a, yeah, okay. Um, I, I just, again, just something I've been puzzling through as a, a statistician in my work life, working in entirely different fields. I just find that side of it, of this, how you deal with that devilish problem um, among many devilish problems, but you don't know what you don't know. And, and um, I can't imagine the, the sort of the anguish it must cause, um, people in, in who, are, who are charged with managing this crisis. Um, Mara, can we, can we slip to the next slide, please? Or skip to the next slide. Okay, now, this is a very busy scatter plot, um, but there are two variables. Um, on, the, on the horizontal axis, we're showing the, 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 the rate at which um, cases are, are being detected. Uh, normalized by population, that's cases per million of population. And on the vertical axis, we've got uh, the test rate, again, normalized by population, uh, test per million. And the red dots are American states, and the blue dots are Australian states. And, and I find, look, it's a busy um, scatter plot here, um, but it, it really does a superb job, I think, of highlighting you know the differences between both testing and and uh, and, and prevalence uh, uh, in in the in the two countries, and also highlights just how dire the the situation is in New York and New Jersey. And 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 Raina, um, I, I look at New South Wales there, um, perhaps the you know well it is the jurisdiction in Australia with the highest known prevalence rate of any Australian jurisdiction. And there are only two US jurisdictions that I can see, West Virginia and um, Minnesota, um, uh, with, with lower uh, rates than, than New South Wales. Sort of another reminder, I think, of, you know, just Australia is, you know, very luckily and happily uh, seeing a, a far lower prevalence rate than, um, than what we're seeing uh, in the United States. Um, and, and I guess the other thing, Raina, is um, you know, out in the far right-hand side of the, of the graph, we see the two really distressing cases, New York and New Jersey. Um, and I'm just wondering if, you, you know, if there's anything that you know, your professional eye sees in these data that you, know, you, want, you might want to draw attention to. Sure. Well, I mean, I think you summed it up really well, um, Simon, and I've got nothing to add to that. But I suppose the other take-home message is that even being able to test extensively, as is the case in New York and uh, Louisiana as well, um, 
that's not the whole story. It's not the whole solution. Um, there's clearly other issues at play there. And I would say the um, health system capacity being exceeded is one of those. Um, and the, the nature of the health system and the access to care uh, would be the other factor in those states. Right. right. So um, that's about it in terms of show and tell from us, Raina, in terms of asking you to react to some of the statistical um, comparisons that we've done. And, and Mara, I think we can, we can end the, the slide deck at this point, um, if that's okay. Thank you so much. Um, um, Raina, I just, there's a great question. We've already touched on it. We've mentioned the travel bans in Australia. We also mentioned the fact that, you know, Australia was able to roll out testing and, and sustained testing, certainly at a higher rate than we've seen nationally, at least in the, in the United States. But a very simple question um, that came from Robert Perkins, uh, who's, who's on the webinar today. Uh, and, and Robert asks, you know, a very simple question. Why is the outbreak in Australia relatively mild? Um, um, you've already mentioned two factors, but I'm wondering, you know, have you got any other bigger picture takeaways to, to add to, you know, why Australia, perhaps with this US comparison in mind, seems to be doing relatively well? So firstly, we haven't exceeded our health system capacity. Every patient that needs to be ventilated has been ventilated. Um, I think Australia also did a lot of groundwork in terms of expanding the ICU bed capacity um, from you know, there was a nice paper in the Medical Journal of Australia from the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Group, which showed that they expanded ICU beds by more than 100% and ventilator capacity also by more than 100%. So there was a lot of planning and um, work that went into ensuring that, you know, we don't get close to that tipping point where we exceed capacity. Um, the other thing is, I suppose, um we you know you've probably noticed over the last several weeks that the case fatality rate has gone up and that's that factor of the debts lagging behind the cases so the final case fatality will probably be similar in every country except for those which ran out of icu beds which will be much higher so i'd expect it to end up around the you know two to three percent mark um, otherwise, I think, you know, Australia has had a very strong response in terms of border control, um, an early and strong response. And um, that has, you know, you might remember, we also, uh, you know, those initial groups of evacuees from Wuhan, they were quarantined on Christmas Island. At the time, there was quite a bit of consternation about that. But, you know, those were all important um, moves that were done, which reduced the impact early on, whereas in the US what we saw was sort of some missed opportunities that allowed the epidemic to grow from the very early stages. Um, one thing, you know, again, a bit of um, amateurs like myself sort of talk about, um, the fact that Australia is largely, I mean, inner city Sydney and Melbourne, notwithstanding Brisbane to all that, we're a suburban society. Um, I'm wondering, does population density and, and the way people live, um, is that to what extent you see that as a contributing factor at all? Uh, definitely, you know, with any respiratory transmissible infectious disease, the, the, inf the rate of transmission to other people is influenced by population density. So the more dense the population, the more transmission there is, and that would certainly be the case somewhere like New York City, for example, and could explain why somewhere like Arizona, for example, is less affected, much more open plan living, you know, spaced out living, etc. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, having said that, we do have a lot of dense apartment style living in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly, um, and that poses more of a risk for transmission. Um, I'm wondering, might switch gears now and, and when people say <laughs> when people are working in public health I want to come to the public part of that and that's where where science meets 
government and politics and, and policy. Um, and I'm just thinking we've had so many questions on this from, from people tuning um, into the webinar um, today. And that is, I'm just wondering, as you look at the response in the United States, um, state and federal coordination or lack thereof and contrasting that perhaps with the Australian case. Um, before we started this morning, Rainer, we were both mentioned we'd read that news report in the United States that a loose network of American governors, largely from the Western part of the United States, have, have are starting to talk to one another about when they might, you know, start to lift social distancing measures. They might coordinate with one another on that. Um, and, and what that might portend for state federal cooperation in the United States. And, and then again, just abstracting away from that, perhaps a little Rainer, how, how important, you know, cooperation across levels of government is in, in pandemic response as a more general matter, perhaps? It's absolutely essential because, you know, epidemic infectious diseases don't respect political boundaries or other types of preferences and you can't afford to have a kind of, um, you know, piecemeal approach um, when it comes to pandemic diseases because they will end up, you know, affecting everybody um, across all kinds of um, divisions. And um, the more you can work together in a coordinated way, the better the prospect of controlling it. That applies globally as well. You know, this is a global problem. It's not time for, you know, blame game and, you know, hostilities to escalate between China and the US, for example. It's in everybody's interest to control it and to, to you know, develop a vaccine and to um, kind of mitigate the toll that it's taking on, on so many countries. Um, I don't know how closely you're tracking you know, state-by-state state responses in the United States, but, um, but Ashley Brinson um, uh, from the Warren Center out at the University of uh, Sydney uh, wonders, you know, have you looked at the leadership of, of certain American state governors and, and thought they're doing a, um, a, a better or worse job than others? You know, as Ashley asked, which governors win a gold star and, and who, gets, who gets wooden spoons? I, I, you don't have to be quite that pointed, but, but I think you, you see where Ashley's question is going. Yeah, I, look, I think uh, each governor is in a different situation. So some are faced with much more challenging um, circumstances than others. You know, obviously for places like New York and Louisiana, et cetera, it's um, a much more difficult situation so it's, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges i suppose sure. um but i think we've seen the same thing here we've seen different responses in victoria and new south wales from what's recommended federally you know victoria went ahead and decided to close schools um despite uh the federal government saying keep the schools open so I think federalism has its unique challenges and you'll find um, states doing what's in their best interest. Um, it's interesting, there was an article um, by Chris Ullman in, the, in one of the Fairfax papers, maybe last month, maybe six weeks ago, talking about lessons from the 1919 uh, pandemic in Australia. It came about a year later to Australia, so it was 1919. And they're exactly the same issues we're seeing today played out then where, you know, Victoria was blaming New South Wales and New South Wales is blaming Victoria. The states all shut their borders to each other. People were getting fined for not wearing a mask out in public. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting that, um, you know, we still need the same kind of measures to control an epidemic. But I think definitely the school, the states in the US that have gone for the um, complete lockdown, um, that that's really what you need to try and get on top of the epidemic, um, a short period of complete lockdown, um, from which you then start from a much lower baseline with fewer cases a day, and it makes it more feasible to test and identify new cases and relax restrictions in a um, phased manner. That's perhaps a, a good point to segue 
to a question about where do we go from here? Um, again, it, we've got American governors, you know, particularly in the Western states that did do some aggressive lockdown. And the story in California uh, is a radically different story um, to New York or New Jersey or Louisiana. Um, but, but coming back to Australia, um, with each passing day where we've got uh, a low, you know, in New South Wales, single digit number of, 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 new, uh, of new confirmed cases, um, the pressure on governments to ease up on, you know, very dramatic lockdown arrangements, um, you know, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's no vaccine. Um, the case fatality rate, as you just said earlier, looks like it will be two to three percent. And, and as Peter Van Onselen said, I think in some media over the weekend, do the math on that. Um, if, this, if this gets loose in the population again, or, or, or just as a, as a practical matter, there's no real alternative other than eventually everybody's going to get this. Um, how, where are we exactly? How, how, how much solace should we take from those low case counts we're getting and what might they portend about when public health officials and, 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 and governments are going to be comfortable easing up on, on social distancing measures? Yeah, look, it is, um, it is good news that we uh, have flattened the curve so well. And, uh, but I think the impact of the social distancing measures that we've implemented are not yet seen. We will need to watch over the rest of the month to see if there's a good impact from those or whether there's a resurgence of cases due to community transmission that hasn't been picked up. Um, but that's, it's, it's a numbers game, I guess, a risk analysis approach where you look at the um, incidence of disease and when it's low, you can think about easing restrictions, but uh, you have to be able to test extensively. So even though we've done very well with testing capacity, it needs to be expanded even more. So the two things that need to happen to allow easing off of restrictions so that you don't get a massive uptick gain. Uh, one, to um, allow any doctor who um, feels that someone should be tested to test. At the moment, that's not the case. You know, there are doctors in hospitals, general practice, who are seeing patients that um, they think have COVID, but they can't get a test. And the second thing is, uh, with the criteria that we have at the moment, which is things like close contacts, return travellers, someone who's within a nursing home or another closed setting where there's an outbreak. Um, we just expand all those same criteria to include testing of people without symptoms. Those two things will enable um, lifting of restrictions to be done safely without risking um, a massive uptick again. But it's going to be a balancing game and um, a very carefully managed um, strategy until the day comes when we can vaccinate people you know, and uh, I don't think there's any real choice between lives and the economy it's not a it's just a fallacious argument if yeah. you don't control it if you have a big epidemic the economy is going to be a lot worse off because half the workforce is going to be off sick and um, you're not going to be able to function and your health system is going to fall over and uh, when you get a big epidemic, you start seeing the full spectrum of disease. So you start seeing babies and children dying. You start seeing young adults dying, which we're seeing in the US and the UK. We've seen in Europe, in Italy and Spain as well. Um, Ryan, a question from the, from the floor, as it were, uh, the virtual floor. Uh, Derek Amur asks, um, what's your view about the use of face masks for the general public? Yeah, I think the US uh, made a good call there. Um, they went, and it was a 180 degree turnaround. Uh, so earlier on, they went along with the WHO's line, which is that there is no benefit of a face mask worn in public. Do not wear one. Um, you should only wear one if you're sick, which is a bad message because firstly, it, is, it kind of suggests that if you're sick, you can put on a face mask and run around in the community, which is the worst thing you could do. You should stay at home if you're sick. 
Um, but there's actually more research evidence, randomized controlled clinical trials on the use of face masks by well people than there are by, by, by sick people. So actually, it's, um, there is evidence to support the use of face masks in the community. Um, in the US, of course, they've recommended cloth masks so that we don't run out of supplies that are limited for health workers. Um, um, but the principle is that because there is asymptomatic transmission, um, there's two benefits from universal face mask use. One is that somebody who's sick and doesn't know they're sick because they don't have symptoms yet um, may uh, be prevented from onward transmission. And someone who's well can also be protected from inhaling um, contaminated air. Um, both on testing and on PPE, both for healthcare workers and um, and the mass public, as we were just talking about. I mean, a lot of roads come back to supply chain questions, Raina. I, I, I definitely want to sound you out on that. You know, does the public health community, does this episode, you know, is, is, a, is a view starting to firm up about, about, you know, how exposed we might be to not having enough sovereign capability there? Um, I'm just wondering the extent to which that is a live policy dimension that you and your colleagues are talking about in response what the you know the takeaways from this from this crisis yeah definitely i think every country needs to look at their domestic capacity um we are so exposed if we um just rely on supply chains from other countries and in a pandemic you know if you're waiting for something from another country you'll be last in line that country will supply their own population first and if they're having a massive epidemic, as was the case with China, you're not going to get anything. You know, there's essential medicines. The US, for example, gets all its heparin, which is an essential medicine for hospitals, um, from China. So, and uh, they get a lot of their insulin from China as well. And a country like the US can manufacture everything domestically and should, you know. Um, we should be, um, you know, restarting our steel industry. We should be restarting our car manufacturing in South Australia, we should be, uh, you know, repurposing factories. Um, you know, the whole idea of having a wartime economy where you um, repurpose existing capacity for um, producing things that are needed in the health system, whether they be masks, respirators, ventilators, um, alcohol, hand sanitizer. And, you know, it's already happening in Australia and the US where distilleries are making um, hand sanitizer and um, car manufacturers are making ventilators, um, but making a surgical mask or, or a disposable respirator isn't that hard, you know? We should be doing it right now. We should be cranking up capacity. Um, it, 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 that needs to be a high priority, both during the pandemic and later. Can I ask, I mean, how, I mean, these data that we've been getting out of Australia, the last couple of days, weeks in particular, so you know that dramatic flattening of the curve here. Is is there a sense that we're through the worst, or the worst is still yet to come? That the southern hemisphere winter um, is 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 another opportunity for the, for the for the virus to to really surge again in Australia. I'm just. Do you have a professional view on on just where we are at this point? I think it's too early to call it. Uh, just look at Singapore. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, everyone was citing Singapore as the example of being able to keep the schools open and have a fantastically successful response. Well, they've just lost control of the epidemic. They've, had, they've been forced to close the schools in a much worse position than they would have been if they'd closed them earlier. Um, it's, too, you know, while we don't have a vaccine and while the majority of the population is non-immune, it's always going to be a risk. Um, and I think there is probably community transmission that we haven't detected. Um, it's not of a magnitude that's great enough to see the impact on the health system. Um, and particularly if we keep schools open, for which there seems to be a determination in some quarters, um, it's going to, you know, it's, it's not, we're not out of the woods. Okay. Um, and do you have um, a view on... There's the testing for active virus, um, but there's also um, 
relatively recently, in recent weeks, um, I've, I've been reading a lot about um, tests for, for antibodies, the presence yeah. of antibodies. Um, how helpful would that be? And B, is it reality or still just straight out of the lab and not ready for prime time yet? I'm just, could, again, I'd so value a professional assessment of what that might do for us and B, is it, is it ready yet to scale? Not ready at scale. You know, I think maybe China and Singapore were the first to develop antibody tests. Other countries, including Australia, have developed antibody tests, but they're not commercially available yet. Um, the, the technology is there to make them commercially available at scale. Um, but what, you know, so you, I think we need partnerships with, um, with uh, commercial companies rather than research labs, you know, beavering away for months and months at a glacial pace trying to get things going, um, you need partnerships with, with uh, commercial companies that can do it at scale to get these tests out there. They're, they're good for um, identifying if someone's being exposed to the virus. So mm -hmm. um, if you want people to go back to work, that would be a good test to do, to find out if you've been exposed and you're safe to go back to work. Um, it's also useful for understanding how wide the transmission is in children and young people, where we don't really know. Uh, well, we do know it's wide, widespread in young people because most of our cases, the biggest age group is the 20 to 40 age group in terms of cases we've seen in Australia. So in terms of understanding population um, transmission patterns and susceptibility in the population, um, serological data is really important. But for the immediate, it, it's, it could be useful for a diagnosis as well, but it takes um, probably a week or even a bit longer to become positive. So it may not be positive early on in the illness. Right. So, but that would be, a, again, so many times, Rain, in the conversation, you've come back and so many questions I'm looking at are asking about the test rate. Um, it just seems to me so many roads lead back to that in your view if I'm characterising your view correctly, that in the absence of a, of, a, of a vaccine, before you could ease up on social distancing, you just need that technology to be yeah. able to engage. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, I guess the other question I wanted to ask is, again, this is where, again, that earlier question about science meeting policy. When you look at the policy architecture say in Australia vis-a-vis -vis the United States for, for rolling out responses, for engaging the scientific community and bringing people in. How would you score Australia? How would you score the United States? What, what, what parts of that policy architecture um, do, are we, is good, could be improved? And again, you know, we're a US study center, so I'd really value if you had any insights about, about you know, the, the Australia-US comparison on, on that dimension. Yeah, so we have some similarities being federalised systems with, uh, you know, that tension between states and federal and both countries we've seen some differences in policy in uh, federal versus state. Um, we've now seen these coalitions of states forming in the US, in the West and the East Coast. Um, and we haven't quite seen that in Australia, but we're a much smaller country, I guess. Um, I think the, um, the, the US has things like the National Academies of Science, which is also really important. We don't really have an equivalent here in Australia. So the NAS puts out, um, you know, synthesizes evidence and pulls together mm -hmm. expert panels and um, helps shed light on really controversial issues like what's the best personal protective equipment for health workers. Um, so I think that does help guide policy, but you still get a lot of disagreement um, between experts on various issues of policy. Um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm back to the testing again. I think there were some big weaknesses in the policy in the US, the gatekeeping, the policy that CDC was the only one allowed to test was incredibly costly. That, just resulted in, you know, loss of control of the epidemic right. in the US. Right. Um, so, so Michael Goodman asks, just in response to that, uh, Raina, um, 
you know, I'm thinking Australian Academy of Science or CSIRO, um, are those. And again, you know, there is a standing body this, um, um, in, in Australia, the, the group of health ministers, federal and state health ministers, you know, and my, my sense is docked into that. There's a, there's a working group on, on pandemic response is sort of part of that standing infrastructure in Australia. But on the other hand, we don't have a CDC in Australia. Would, would that be, you know, should CSIRO have that, you know, mandate as, as yeah. well? So we see the more um, typical command and control in, um, set up in the states, which do have operational response capacity. Um, at the Commonwealth, there, is, there isn't the operational response capacity that, say, a national CDC would give you. Um, and so you s correspondingly, you, you don't see the same command and control um, structure, which you, you need. This is a disaster. You need a disaster management framework to respond to a disaster. And um, we, in Australia, we've got it at the States, but not, not so much federally. Um, and that's just an observation in terms of the way, yeah, sure. um, you know, the, the, the structures that are there at the moment. Um, sure. Hey, our time is starting to run a little bit short. There's so many great questions have been coming through as we've been talking. A number, Raina, and I've, I've definitely got to ask you about this. What's going on regionally? Here we are, you know, we're a US study center and we've been talking a lot about the Australia-US comparison, but to our near north, we've got Indonesia, we've got PNG, we've got, um, you know, what's happening in Africa with the pandemic, um, what's happening in countries with less state capacity of the sort that we've just been talking about, policy architecture and all, all the rest of it. Um, um, just, Again, the view from the field, you and your colleagues, you know, what you're assessing with respect yeah. to these other less developed countries and the, A, what's happening and, and the longer run consequences of those states having particularly perhaps bad experiences with the pandemic. Yeah. So from a global health perspective, you know, the pandemic has to be controlled everywhere. There's no point controlling it here and it's raging all around us. You know, that's not going to make it easier for us. Um, the Pacific is particularly at risk because of weak health systems and weak capacity for diagnostics and surveillance of disease. Um, so I think that's an important part of the, you know, the, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade portfolio. They do, we do have the Centre for Health Security in Australia, which is a DFAT-funded um, organisation. Um, and um, I think they would be focusing very much on helping the Pacific with their preparedness. Um, we do have WHO in the Pacific as well, um, trying to help countries with their preparedness, but um, countries like PNG have particular challenges. They've, you know, um, got geographic and uh, uh, geographic challenges in terms of very inaccessible areas, um, issues of um, instability and violence as well that could come into play um, and then we look at a big country like Indonesia also an archipelago with multiple islands and um, that those the actual um, you know we did a um, exercise of uh, Pacific clips in the US at the end of last year and looked at um, particular challenges of disease infectious disease control in a pandemic in the Pacific, and you've got so much undocumented travel between islands, people, you know, move around on their boats uh, between small island nations and between islands within a nation. Um, it's very difficult to control. Um, uh, and I think that is a unique challenge in the Pacific. Um, you've also got, you know, the US and China with a footprint in the Pacific. Um, it's geopolitically an important region as well. Right. Um, look, we're just about out of time. It's, it's, that's been an hour and it goes extremely quickly. Um, so much interest in this topic. We've had over 100 people online with us uh, through the session today and, and so many great questions. I, I, I tried to cherry pick uh, questions that I thought were emblematic or summarised, you know, sort of the, in a thematic way what we were, what we were getting. Um, Raina, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's a pleasure, Simon.
thank you so much. I, I, I'm just so delighted to get a view from, a, from real healthcare professionals, real, real public health professionals, um, particularly as it intersects some of these questions about geopolitics, supply chains, foreign policy. Um, it's so important that I think people like the US Study Center um, are in dialogue and, and hearing expert views on, on the science and, and, and the health matters um, before we engage in what we, we do and offering our opinions and our analysis of, of what might happen with respect to foreign policy and whatnot that, 